Welcome to episode 51 of Love with Elise Peck. I'm your host, Elise Peck, best-selling author and love coach. And today, very excited to have a licensed mental health therapist specializing in shame and anxiety and boundary setting and connection on the podcast. How exciting. This is, of course, a podcast where we collect love stories, where we speak to people that do have the result of having the satisfying love that they want over a long long term, enduring love, not just in the infatuation phase where everyone thinks they're getting the love that they want (laughs) because they're still in the fantasy phase and projecting on someone else um, that they will live up to some sort of fantasy. But we speak to people that have moved through that into more of the power struggle, into authentic love, into seeing the light and shade of another person and then finding real enduring deep love amongst that. And so today, Kira Wackett, she she is 12 years into her relationship with her husband and they have been on journeys together of healing and well together and separately of healing and, and really creating the love that they want and she has some incredible insights both from her personal journey and as a licensed mental health therapist. Uh, This is a brilliant episode. There is so much wisdom. There's some really practical, tangible, solid tips in there, which is just so powerful. I mean, when Kira was talking, I would just sort of I would just go in flow state. It, time would just stand still. It was just, it's it, almost hypnotic listening to her. There's so much wisdom that it's like your brain almost just wants to like drink it in and like just like get that in your brain now, everything that she knows. So it was just so enjoyable. Uh, and also, if you don't currently have the love that you want, some exceptional tips in there to really help you, you get that result. Uh, And also near the end, Kira speaks about how you can connect with her and work with her and her newest offering coming up in January next year around shame and boundaries and and doing the real work that gets you, you know, um, the life and the love that you want. All right. So enjoy this episode. Welcome to another episode of Love with Elise Peck. I'm your host, Elise Peck, and today I'm speaking with Kira Wackett. Now, I'm really excited. Kira is a licensed mental health therapist specializing in shame and anxiety, boundary setting and connection. Kira has been working on her own shame recovery for over 10 years and is interested in exploring the impact shame has on how all of us lead and love in our lives. She has been with her husband for 12 years and notes that within their relationship, they have each gone through separate and collaborative shame recovery work and have actively had to make a choice to show up and put in the work to create a relationship in which they can both thrive, explore and be seen. So, wow, I could not be more excited to um, to dive into the mind of Kira. Let me tell you, welcome, Kira. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. I'm thrilled. All right. I would love to kick off by asking you, what is your favorite thing about your relationship with your husband, about being in that relationship? I think the thing that stands out to me, I had a client, a therapy client, maybe last year, kind of exploring what love meant to them and asked me, how do you even define it? it? feels like such an overwhelming thing. 
how do you even know if you love somebody? And I sat with it for a few weeks in between our sessions. And one of the things that really stood out to me was that I feel like genuine, real, true love is about being willing to show up every day with that sense of curiosity and openness with a drive to be seen, to allow yourself to be seen, but also without taking away from the other person. So really kind of that element of assertive living, being able to both take up space and figure out how to use that space in a way collectively and individually. And I think that is the thing that I've really kind of honed in on as my gift in my relationship with Jordan is I just feel like we are able to do that where no one is ever having to, it never feels like we're stifling each other. It feels like doesn't even feel like compromise. It feels like we're we're working through something to discover the best outcome that really allows us to live in line with our values. And that has again taken the, you know, almost 12 years. Well, now I guess we've been together over 12 years to be at this point. But that is, I think, the beautiful thing for me. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love the way you've articulated and given words, words to that. Uh, and I think a lot of people are probably listening and thinking. Oh, a relationship where I can be myself, allow the other person. It doesn't involve compromise. Uh, that sounds incredible. And I think your your insight about the power of curiosity and how mm-hmm. we come to conversations and a relationship with a curiosity to understand each other rather than to get or do something to each other. Um, mm-hmm. It allows more of that feeling of not compromise rather than team players, you know, coming Absolutely. To- I love that. All right. So let's go all the way back 12 years ago now. Yes. <laughs> and I would love to hear about the start. I'd love to know, were you looking for love? Were you, what was your mindset um, right before you met Jordan? Yeah. So as you started asking these questions, I realized this is my first time I'm saying this out loud publicly. And so it's really fun to get to think back on it and to be able to tell the story in this way. So I was actually in a relationship at the time that I met Jordan. So I was 22, just graduated from college. I didn't get into medical school. And that had kind of been my life, we'll say shame dream. I learned over time, it was never really my dream. It was this thing that I sort of said and was good at and kind of got pushed into. And when I didn't get in, I decided to go to Nicaragua on a whim and do one of those medical mission trips, which I've since learned are have a lot to be desired in terms of what they do and what help is. But I went down idea being, I need to get away from here and explore something and start to figure out who I am. I met Jordan while I was on that trip. He was similarly attending also from the same university as me, but still we had never met before prior to that point. And the moment I met him, I remember going, oh shoot. Like I had this feeling like it was a life altering feeling. And I had been in my relationship at that point for eight years. We started dating our sophomore year, maybe freshman year of high school. And so we had been together all through college and had talked about getting married. I wouldn't say that the relationship was, I I think like a lot of the people that are listening here and a lot of the stories that have been told, I had spent eight years talking myself into the relationship because it's what I believed I deserved. I didn't believe I deserved to have somebody that wanted to push me into the spotlight too. You know, I didn't deserve that I was 
I could have all the things I wanted. And I think a lot of my trauma had led to that. So when I met Jordan, I was very upfront with him. I told him I was in a relationship. I said, I don't really know (laughs) what I felt when I met you, but there's something there. And we both agreed just to kind of be friends. I, about a week later, ended up getting sick with what's called dengue fever, which is a mosquito-borne illness that people refer to it as breakbone fever. It's so painful. You can't move. You can't do anything. It's pretty scary. And so I'm in another country. I am in these very remote places where we were bringing medical supplies. So there wasn't necessarily access to regular care. I mean, thankfully we had physicians with us from the area that could help me, but he would come and just lay on the bed next to me and talk to me and help me drink water and like do what I needed to do every day. And in a way that was with such kindness and I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't, I didn't know how to make sense of it. Fast forward through the end of the trip, we ended up, he somehow got it rearranged that we were on the same flights back towards Wisconsin. I don't remember how that happened, but something happened. We ended up being on the same flight, at least for part of it. And on the way out there, there had been really bad turbulence, like bad enough that the the people working on the airplane were like, you know, take your seats, take your seats, like kind of scary vibes. I was pretty scared getting on the airplane and I'm still sick and can't like show it because I was afraid they wouldn't let me leave even though I had been like quote unquote cleared to go home and there was a point where I got really scared and he just reached over and asked if he could hold my hand if that would help and I just like felt this connection right away and it was instant I came home I lived with my grandma at the time and she's like what what happened something's different something changed and it was you know, the sort of beautiful piece would have been if I said, and then I left this relationship and I was in love with him and it was great ever since, but it was, you know, about six months of back and forth of still not believing I deserved that. He is a very beautiful human, physically, mentally, emotionally, his aspirations, his wants, his values, they were very scary to me. And again, believing I didn't deserve that. So I would find all these little faults in him. I would try to talk myself. I remember one time I sent him, this was back when like Facebook messenger and blackberries were like the best way to communicate. And I sent him like a six page Facebook message, basically being like, I can't leave. Can you wait a year? I knew being with him meant leaving everything I had known up to that point, even though I knew everything I knew wasn't, wasn't the life I wanted. But again, it was what I now call the predictable crappiness. I knew how to exist there. And what scared me was being in a relationship where I didn't know what existed because I knew it would be something bigger, something more, something that I couldn't make sense of why I was deserving of that. And long story long, within that six months, he was just continued to be patient. He continued to show up with love and kindness. One of the things that sold me is my mom is now, I I think she's, 15 years sober from cocaine. And I'd mentioned something to him like offhandedly months prior that her anniversary was coming up. And then we were on a point where I was like, I'm not, I can't talk to you. I have to try to make this relationship work. I have to see if it's going to happen. And he just randomly texted me and was like, I just want to celebrate you and your mom today on this important day. And I remember being like, okay, the feeling came back and it was kind of a slow peel back but it did eventually I made the choice. I did sort of ripped the bandaid I'm sure we'll get to it, but that didn't mean that suddenly then I was like, I deserve this and everything is great and, you know, loving it. I I went into it, but it took me years before I think I really allowed myself to be in it. Like I went into it with all those fears and defenses that I 
the relationship was like filled with so much love and fear that I definitely saw myself performing even early on because again that sort of I you know what we all talk ourselves out of deserving of something that's so real and true and that's love because you're a human who deserves it not love because you're doing everything for everyone else wow oh my gosh uh there's so much in that I absolutely love it um I go into like flow state when you talk <laughs> it's, it's not hypnotic it's just um uh, yeah I'm just like drinking up your words I love the way you articulate your experience but I also love um the way that you're willing to share your story I have so many stories that don't even come on the podcast because people are um, afraid to just be real. And I, I think mm -hmm. a lot of people miss out on hearing some really relatable, critical stories where life wasn't the fairy tale. Um, but just someone having the bravery to own their story and just say it without shame, right? Beautiful. Mm -hmm. is, um, is, I think, is one of the most healing forces in the world because, like, life isn't convenient and love isn't convenient and love can strike at the most inconvenient times and everyone's journey is a little bit different and um one person's path is not the others uh, it's sort of like everyone's yeah. truth is is within themselves and um that crossroads of you have been i mean i'm thinking in terms of like from a mindset perspective <laughs> You've been getting your neural pathways really trained into eight years of one thing, right? You've been getting mm -hmm. really familiar. Your brain is like, this is the safety. This is the comfort. It's familiar. The brain loves what's familiar. This is we, it hasn't killed you yet. Let's keep doing it. And then right. this, this other pull, which is, it sounds to me like a knowing you, you had like mm -hmm. a knowing. And I just want to flag for a minute. I have this pattern that I recognize, which is so often a uh, really deep, fulfilling love comes to particularly feminine, um, like a woman after she surrenders. So often there's this breaking point. <laughs> she, I don't know, finally feels a lot of feelings, um, has this moment of just like, ugh, like something comes up and out. Uh, and for mm -hmm. you, it's like you were striving, striving. You didn't get into um, your goal, your medical school. And mm -hmm. I imagine that would have been a bit of like a breaking moment of some part of the ego or whatever you want to call it, just a moment of surrendering to, I surrender, now what? And then I often say after you surrender and you go to that, oh, it's almost like a humbling place. It's like, now I'm in reality. Now I was wanting a fantasy and now I'm in reality. All right, now like this is what's real. What do I want to do next? Often when you've thrown it all up, and you've got rid of what you think you should be and should do, what happens next is actually kind of more close to who you really are. Um, and it's like that often I call that is, I know this is all a little bit out there and not everyone goes with the terminology. <laughs> it's not technically science, right? But <laughs> I just notice these patterns and these are the words I give to it. I notice that the next step is often something I call alignment. And I just love your story. My framework, my head's going, so didn't get the goal, surrendered, alignment, and something I often say is on your path of alignment. So when you start actually moving from who you really are, when you start asking, well, who am I? What do I want to do? Uh, if I'm not going to be what I should or have to be, now what do I be? And so that's where you'll meet someone. And uh, I just, I'm seeing that in your story. And I love that moment of just knowing and then you resisting. It's like the inner pull mm -hmm. and resistance. Uh, and, you know, I've, there's been other people on the podcast that have come on and said, 
it was difficult because my heart was in, half of my heart was over here and the other half was here and one was my past and one was my future. And I think that's not very often not a very spoken about dynamic where you have been training your brain to accept something or make something work, but then something far more compatible shows up um, and navigating the flip, the flip to that. Like, what would you say to someone who right now is maybe they've been trying to make the wrong thing work? And they kind of know it, but they're they're trying to whether it's a job or a relationship or anything, they're trying to force something to work, and then something has come along that is clearly clearly far more them. Like, do you have any any insights? Yeah. courage. Yeah, I love that. And I think so much of what you're saying, you know, if we walk it back a little bit more even, you know, so romantic partnerships or, you know, these very intimate relationships are extensions of other relationships that we have growing up and then our sense of self that's created around them. And so, you know, for all of us, when we're born, our brain, its sole job besides getting its basic needs met, you know, food, water, shelter, is sort of the fourth one we don't talk a lot about, which is connection. And it's figuring out how to secure connection in the world. And so who do I have to be? What do I have to do? What do I have to look like? How do I have to talk? How do I have to, what can my weight be? What can my size be? You know, if we think about all these different aspects of identity, how is that shaping the way that we try to make sense of how do I secure attachment? How do I secure good enoughness to be loved, to be a part of something? And again, on a broad scale for some people that has to do with race, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation. If we zoom in on the details that has to do even more so with how are you responded to when you brought home a C versus an A in school? How did your friends respond when you wore the hand-me-down clothes versus the brand new shirt from, I remember when I was in middle school, it was like Abercrombie and Fitch and Hollister and everybody's wearing these clothes. And if you didn't have it, how did people respond? And so, you know, or if you liked one type of music and other people didn't. So as you are sort of learning to test, learning to explore, you're sort of reaching these moments of shutdown for the sake of performance and conformity. So you have to be this way. You have to look this way. You have to talk this way. So for many of us, that's where I think my med school thing came in was I have to be the best. I have to be the one with the lofty goals. I have to be the one that is perfect at all costs. I, as I mentioned, my mom struggled with what we found out later on was undiagnosed bipolar disorder. And she was in my life pretty actively for the first 10 years and then had a really significant relapse with cocaine and other substances. And I never lived with her again. It was like 15 12 years, somewhere around there, 10 to 12 years of basically a battle of substance use, alcohol problems, being in jail, being in prison, coming in and out of my life. And so, you know, one of the things that I think for all of us to think about is what were those relationships like when we were young, whether it's our attachment figures, you know, caregivers, parents, your peers, your teachers, those early loves that we had, what did you learn from that? And how did you start to make sense of who you have to be to be okay. And this is where your fear brain gets primed because we would rather perform and conform to have a guaranteed spot than to be othered and to stand out. And if you get an inkling that your authentic self is going to be too far out there, you're going to shut down. You're going to conform. And so I think, you know, I met my 
my ex's name also happened to be Jordan. So when I met the first Jordan in my life, I had, I had moved in with my aunt and uncle. I was in fifth grade when I first met them. And at that point, my life had been several years of chaos with my mom sort of slowly unraveling. I didn't quite know what end was up. And now suddenly I was living with different people. I had moved across the state. I just, I just wanted to feel a part of something. And there was a few more years of kind of trauma and stuff with my mom as she kind of worsened in her addictions as I moved around to different households. But I think what happened is the person I dated and all of my friends at that time were from a small town where all of their parents went to school together. There was like this sort of inner incestual component of it, of there was a guaranteed network because everybody that was from the small town stayed in the small town. They went to school together. All of their kids are friends. They're all going to be around. And so what I longed for was that I wanted security. I wanted to be a part of something that wasn't going to leave. So I was trying to buy into this club that I didn't even really care about. I just wanted that sense of inner peace. I didn't want to wake up wondering, is my mom leaving again? Am I getting kicked out to another house? Am I being moved to this thing? Do I suddenly have to go here or worry about this? I would rather take crappy but predictable than take the chance on something real and intense because I didn't know if I could handle that failing. And so I think for many of us, you know, you mentioned whether it's a job, a relationship, even thinking about friendships that we've been talking ourselves into for so long it goes back to this idea of not trusting or believing or having any evidence that we've retained because our shame does such a great job getting rid of it or hiding it that we could be okay if we didn't stay in these relationships, that we could be okay if we stopped performing. And that in fact, if we stop performing, we can actually figure out how to thrive. And that belonging does exist if we can do that. And I think that's the work many of us have to do internally before we even tether it to a romantic relationship, a job, whatever it is, but getting clear on what am I performing around and why, and what am I scared of if I give that up? Where was I taught to be fearful of this and how do I decondition that fear response? So like you said, when there's sort of this surrender and this peace, it wasn't half my heart over there. It was every ounce of fear that was you know, conditioning me not to listen to my heart. And then suddenly my heart started calling and I was like, well, I don't know what to do with that. And then every time that something could go wrong. And I knew when I left, I knew when I ended that relationship, everyone would leave because again, they were so tight knit. When I broke off the relationship, I lost all my friends. I lost everything and had to come up with a new way of being with a person that scared the crap out of me because he didn't need me. And I had built every relationship I had about being needed. They needed me to caretake for them because that was the role. That's the security. And then being with somebody who doesn't need it, you go, well, if they don't need me and I've conditioned myself to believe I can't be chosen, how in the world am I supposed to exist in this? How do I give enough space to allow the possibility that maybe I could be chosen even if I'm not needed? Wow. Okay. That was incredible. Um, and also what's hitting me is the courage, the courage that you must have had because <clears throat> we had um, on episode 29, attachment specialist, um, Adam Lane Smith on, and I've done his attachment boot camp, and he speaks about how most people need 
two to three secure attachments before they get like often anxiety is a symptom of not having secure attachment of course there's biological and whatever and that's a real that's a real overview but a lot of people calm down like especially with anxious attachment style a lot of people calm down once they get three really secure attachments in their life so there is a survival wiring for us to do exactly what you said find the security especially if it's been chaotic find the security um and i wonder like how does someone like that crossroads of moving from the security to the jump i mean i, I saw this quote the other day mm-hmm. it's like it's like you jumped thinking you were going onto a bed of needles only to find out it was a feather bed or whatever it was into the abyss mm-hmm. kind of spiritual ideas of like you know often what you if you run towards your fears you'll find out it's actually a feather bed and i wonder for anyone that um i mean i've worked with people that the whole they have been performing for so long they don't know who they are they're like i don't yeah. know if i can love i don't know if i can be real i don't even know who i am if i'm not performing and um for them it would feel life and death to even take the risk to start saying what they really they really think um yeah i wonder what i guess what i wonder is what gave you the courage how did you to have gone from something so unstable to then have the stability how did you find the courage to jump when it meant losing all the security <laughs> because it's like maslow's hierarchy of needs right you need the security before the belonging but how right. do you, how do you get the belonging when you get rid of the security right i mean i think a lot of it and i love the way you're pulling all these things in because i think we're just kind of bringing into the discussion just how complex this is because i think so often we reduce our pain our problem to something's broken in me i'm screwed up i messed up like i can't find love but everybody else can instead of realizing we are all products of a shame-based system that's designed to make us fear being authentic And the people that we see, you know, not every time, because there are people that have done the work to break past this, but a lot of the times what we're seeing is a very coveted performance to make it look like we are okay, to make it feel, I mean, everybody in my life thought I had everything, that it was going to be such a great relationship. And I created that because I wanted there to be a certain perception. I think at least for me, you know, from the therapy side, long-term, if anybody's doing something the goal is to do it for themselves and to be rooted in themselves, to not, if, if everything went away, if everything didn't work out, to know that they have, you know, that's really what resilience is, to know that they would be okay. They have the skills, the tools to be able to move through something. And, you know, bringing in back what you said about attachment theory, it does require the safety and security of someone. And knowing that you aren't, you know, it feels all or nothing, feels like you're going to lose everything, but having something or someone that's consistent. In my case, it was, you know, my eventual husband who just kept showing love, who never asked me to be ready for something that I wasn't ready for, but also wasn't, was never going to make me feel bad because of what I had gone through or where I was at. And so I think that helped me for a lot of people. It could be talking to someone like you or me, you know, being in the therapy room and just having someone that is able to bring a different experience for many of us. I think we have a lot more supports around us than we are aware of, because again, we've sort of 
decondition ourselves from putting our real thought out there. You know, how many people, every time their friends ask, I just had it with a coaching client prior to this call. And, you know, I said, how are you? And she's like, well, do you, she starts answering it. And she's, well, do you mean the, like, I'm fine. Everything's good. We keep going. Or are you actually asking? And I was like, I never ask it the first way. I really want to know how you are. And most of us have people in our life that actually do want to know how we are. We've just conditioned ourselves to believe that we couldn't possibly take up that space. So I think to answer your question, it's finding something or someone and having the ability to kind of lean into that. And it's great if it can be someone in your personal life and it can be a professional. It can be a therapist. It can be a coach. It can be somebody you listen to on YouTube that gives you the strength and you relate to them. It doesn't have to be, you know, your partner or your, your parent or whoever it might be. I think the second thing is to really consider there's pain in both choices. And so really what we're doing is staying in that relationship would have been painful moving into this relationship was really painful. Not only the loss, but like it has been an F ton of work in 12 years. And I, I mean, we, now I can say honestly have one of the most relate, most amazing relationships I've seen. But I remember there being a time where I'm like, I can't do this. I can't consistently have these hard conversations. Like it's so much work to create this and to undo the things that we learned. And I, I think for me, at least now, what I consider is, am I kicking the can down the road and just keeping myself stuck in long-term distress and that sort of perpetual low-grade angst and resentment and loneliness? Or am I going to choose the short-term high-acuity distress of making that hard choice? And again, needing to turn to that resiliency piece instead of what anxiety likes to do of saying, well, can you plan for everything? Do you know what's going to happen? Is it going to be okay? Do you have an answer? Do you have plans A through Z ready to go? We don't need that. We need to get to the point where we say, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I have learned that I can and will be able to call upon the skills, the tools, the supports to be okay, even if all of it goes to the worst case scenario. And then the third part is you jump. There's never going to be a day that you wake up. If you wake up and you go, this feels great. I'm ready. There's no risk. Then you're avoiding vulnerability. Vulnerability requires risk. That's the only way for us to create change. So I think that's kind of my three-part process. Although, you know, there's way more complicated. <laughs> so brilliant. So brilliant. And I relate to so much that you said in there. So just to like wrap it up into nice three little pillars. It was essentially yes. being rooted in yourself and trusting yourself having at least one consistent touch point. And I loved how practical and doable it was to have, you know, someone on YouTube that inspires you, that is close to the truth that you want to be. And you're seeing them not die by being the authentic version of themselves or right. therapist or just, you know, looking in your network for the people that maybe you didn't value before because you were looking for razzle dazzle. Now it's time to value the really secure, stable, <laughs> stable person. Um, so it's, yep. It's one is a self-trust, two is finding something consistent that doesn't have to be in your romantic life. Uh, and the third, why if I suddenly forgot the third? Um, it was really poignant. I think it was just really for summarizing it, just jump, jump, realize that, jump. you know, yeah, you won't, you won't ever feel ready, radical acceptance. <laughs> yes, you won't ever feel ready, jump. And all of this has to do with, you know, it all, it all comes back to trusting yourself and trusting that, 
You even have the ability to just say if everyone falls away, well, you, you know how to build connection with people, like you know how to find a new source of consistency. If that one falls away, mm-hmm. you will be able to network and find another one. Um, and I think that also comes from self-trust. If you think that everyone will abandon, on some level, there must be a doubt in your ability to find that again. Um, so that's mm-hmm. another another sort of self-trust. If that falls away, I, I've got to trust. If I had the skill to, to create these connections once, I could find that and create it again. Um, mm-hmm. What I find is really important about this is I was listening to a podcast episode the other day um, by Dr. Ramani, uh, the Navigating Narcissism podcast, and it was about um, cults. And mm. when I'm listening to you, um, the version of you that uh, really just wanted security at any cost, to me, struck yeah. me as being so vulnerable to a cult. Um, yep. You know, I will do anything to feel I belong. And I mm-hmm. think um, that is the power of, of um, choosing authenticity and only belonging to yourself for a little bit until you find the belonging mm-hmm. that matches your authenticity versus choosing belonging above all else. Because if you choose belonging before your authenticity, you can you can get stuck in a, in a lot of cults, which can just um, bit by bit you forget who you even are. Your identity is just gone. Yeah. And you wake up one day, you know, you wake up one day doing things that, you know, it's a famous test. Like, will you electrocute someone if, if mm-hmm. a an authority will tell you to it's like yep. humans, humans will submit to an authority you're submitting to the cult what and you are you going to wake up one day and wonder who you are and i think that is a risk and in that podcast dr romani mentions a bit about how a lot of family units actually are like a cult especially yeah. if, you know if there's a narcissist at the head of it or whatever there's flying monkeys everywhere and um so if we have been conditioned in a family unit like that We've kind of been conditioned, ready to be perfect for a cult or perfect for someone to take advantage of us. Um, and ultimately, we miss out on being connected to ourselves and therefore getting the kind of love that would actually give us the real satisfying connection and belonging. So I think for anyone listening going, OK, they're both going to cause pain. Why would I jump? Um, it's a little bit of just boiling up the pain on the side of abandoning yourself for connection. Uh, and realizing that, you know what, that's always available to you. You can always go back to abandoning yourself and connecting with people. That's always going to be there. <laughs> yeah. So why not try? And I can tell you, like, I I, I really connect to you saying find, um, find one consistent thing because I went on this journey myself. I um, was abandoning myself. I was like the crowd pleaser. Do you know what I mean? Like I knew how to get mm-hmm. on with everyone. Oh, yeah. uh, I knew how to make everyone laugh and whatever and then I remember saying to my husband one day like I'm actually an introvert why do I do this then I I have this booming social calendar and I just want to be alone what am I doing I'm like you know what if they all knew who I really was none of them would actually want to hang out with me I'm like maybe I'll try that out (laughs) maybe I'll try then I'll have less requests then I'll have less of a social like it was just this (laughs) I was really, I was in the depths of sleep deprivation and probably postnatal depression at this point, and I was pretty fed up, so I was willing to just experiment. Um, <laughs> and I, I went out with it, and let me tell you, yeah, and I come out in the world actually myself now, there's yeah. far fewer. There is a, a far smaller crowd. There is. There's a far smaller crowd. And even my content is very, um, it's legitimately what I think people want to know, what need to know yeah. rather than what will get likes. 
So right. I, I, I'm like, this will actually help you if you actually do this. It's going to be tough medicine, though. It's not popular. Yes. And I tell you what, there there is a smaller crowd. There are and a lot of people do abandon. They're like, no, you are not the fantasy I thought you were. You are actually real. You're mm-hmm. a human with upsides and downsides. And now I'm out. Now I see. Yep. I see your your the parts I don't like, and um, and I think yeah, it's it's not all sunshine and roses when you do choose to take a risk, um, but it, it's 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 got to be worth it because the alternative is um, you never get to actually be yourself. You well, know? and what you said that I think is key too is realizing, you know, a lot of the times I'll use the prove it method with, so I'm. 10 years in recovery now from an eating disorder, I would say I'm like, we'll probably always experience some elements of PTSD, but more so what I experience now is kind of the roots of generalized anxiety. And every time my anxiety takes a story and runs with it, you know, if I can back it up and validate that I feel that way and really like, can I name and validate the feeling and kind of be like, of course you feel scared. Of course you feel like things are gonna fall apart. Of course, if you've spent your whole life believing you have to be or do X, how could you not feel that way? And feelings are not facts. And so how do we bring in that element of, and so for me, I say, prove it. Because I have all the proof that this way doesn't work. I don't actually have any proof that this way is not going to. So I think what you said even of like, you can always go back, but at least be willing to experiment before we draw a conclusion. You know, you've made a hypothesis, the outcome rather than tested it. And so I think that's the key piece too. And like you said, there are some really stark realities about what people, who's around, who's in your corner, what you have, but there's way less noise because what you start to realize is that we don't need a million followers. I like, I no longer will want to be on anybody's podcast or apply to speaking events that it's all about how many followers do you have? How many people are on your email list? What about these data points that are about hyper connection and performance rather than saying, yeah, but you know what? I want to have a real conversation. Like you said, I'm done with us all putting on band-aids to continue the performance. I would rather be like, look, I'm imperfect. I barely have it together most days. I have a two and a half year old and I feel like every morning or every evening at some point I sit there and think I am the worst parent on the planet and I have to talk myself out of my shame of that one. And if it wasn't her, it was my husband. It was my friendship. I had a play date last week and I, no joke, spent 48 hours talking myself through everything I said at that play date to think that parent must think I'm the worst person on the planet and is never going to want to play with me and my kid again. None of that is true, but I think the the third maybe fourth, I don't know, we have way too many numbers now. But the, the other thing is to realize at your core, even though your shame is misguided, it's trying to protect you. It's trying to make it so you have connection. It's just not founded on any actual fact. It's taken fear, jumped to danger, and now it's just sending off red alerts all the time. Instead of saying, oh, that, that might not be great. That could go wrong. What do we need to do to feel okay? It just says, shut it down, stop it. We don't want to take the chance. And that sort of risk averseness is again, never going to get us that connection that we love. And so I was listening to Dak Shepard on his most recent episode of his podcast, Armchair Expert. And he was just talking a little bit about with Constance Wu, who talked about her experience as an actress, as somebody who struggles with severe mental health and the sort of feedback system of 
chasing the likes, but also the more we chase the sort of external validation, you have to let in the external rejection. And so I think the ultimate piece too, is to realize, you know, maybe for all of us to ask the question, do you like yourself right now being the person you're performing to be? Like, do you like that version? Are you at peace with it? Do you feel good? Do you wake up and get excited for that? If not, it nothing else matters other than the fact that you deserve to wake up every day and love yourself enough to be excited to get out of bed. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that. I love that. I relate to that so much because, um, you know, when I came out as a coach, my initial niche was was still in the love category, but different. And something, and it got um, really kind of like crazy, they, like results. Like, as in people were like, it's raining men. It was da 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 da. Um, yeah. really, it really sold, it really sold, but there was a niggle in me that didn't feel good because underneath I thought, I think this is the recipe for trauma, getting people trauma bonds because, um, mm. they're not ready. I don't want to help people get, they're not ready. Then I kind of feel a little bit sorry for the person that they get with, <laughs> like, because they weren't ready for the hard parts. And now I do something very different, which is far more focused on getting people ready for secure attachment rather than getting yeah. out of the way. And I want to, I want to help them because when you don't have secure attachment and you think love is a fantasy, what you want out of relationship is very, very different to once you understand what relationship is meant to give you. So if I help people got the, get the result of the fantasy they wanted, um, mm -hmm. Short term, they're going to think I'm an amazing coach, got a great result. Long term, right. <laughs> long term, their life's not going to be great because that that's yeah. probably a push pull, anxious avoidant, like you know, repeating their childhood situation. I would rather now do some mm -hmm. medicine, like like get a, a get them working on their life, their goals, they're getting them mm -hmm. in and getting them feeling more like from the overflow and this and that, and getting a lot of the feelings that they think they want in relationship. Uh, in themselves and then realizing how once you actually have a lot of that in yourself you want something kind of different you want just like more um connection you want connection rather yeah. than someone very impressive if, for example do you know yep. what I mean like you think you want Justin Bieber if you don't have secure attachment but if once you get um, but once you once you become your own version of Justin Bieber you know what I mean um then you're like well maybe actually you know a lot of like I think Sophie Monk is a, a celebrity here in Australia and she came out on um, the bachelor and she was like i just want a normal person i don't want someone in yeah. the industry because once you become the razzle dazzle yourself you start to see it's like jim carrey says like i wish everyone could get rich and famous to realize it's not the answer you start to see what's missing is the real human connection and then you really want human connection so i'm trying to get people to the place where they actually <laughs> start wanting the connection and my point on that is just to say that i now feel really 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 proud of what I do, but it's less sellable. It's less sellable. It's a slower. It's a more of a secure journey. <laughs> it's just yeah. It's you don't have like the fancy stats to put up on your website to be like, yeah. look, this is the thing. It's like, oh no, what I'm offering you is the opportunity to feel incredibly uncomfortable for a significant amount of time, and then like ride that wave, and then you'll feel something. And I promise it'll be there, but like I can't totally tell you when or how to put it into words yeah I've gone from selling sugar to to vegetables <laughs> do you know what I mean it's going to take a little while for people yeah. to decide they're going to have to have enough rotten teeth and enough uh ill health to be like maybe it's time for the vegetables <laughs> yeah um but yeah. so I totally I totally love that point about yeah but how do you okay you're getting a result but how do you feel about yourself because that's what mm -hmm. I've been searching for what is my niche where I feel proud 
where I feel I can, you know, I can proudly say I'm proud of myself. Like, yeah, like that. Yes. Um, and I, I, so I really love that point um, that, that just really resonated with where I'm at in my life as well. And I want to backtrack to something you said a little bit earlier about validation and feelings, because when mm. I was on a healing journey, I was looking for so many tools this and that. And I realized later, a lot of it was actually looking for avoidance. I was still looking for avoidance. I was looking for the tool that would help me without me having to feel the feelings. And I think that, I think that when I look at what actually worked, um, um, air quotes, you know, over here, no one can see me. I don't think you can see me, but I'm doing all these hand actions. Uh, hopefully it's coming across in my tone. But when I think about what really, really worked and I boiled down the tools that really worked, Honestly, they were self-regulation. It's it's self-regulation. Yeah. <laughs> fancy. It was feel your feelings, be willing to feel it, and then validate it. Like validate yep. yourself. And I went my whole life. I went to like maybe thirty without knowing what validation was, or that that was something that was meant to happen in relationships. Um, yep. I mean, like on some level, I must have been accidentally doing it for people to build rapport. But I, I it was so much happens and so many people get up in their heads and they're panicking trying to solve things and so much of it could be solved by saying why don't you sit with that and let yourself have permission to feel that like but what mm -hmm. if what if like if they're trying to get over an ex for example but what mm -hmm. if you have a better relationship with the next person what if he does have it in him i'm like well what would you then feel what would you then have to feel what are you scared to feel what would that make mm -hmm. you feel? I'm going to feel like maybe I'm broken. Maybe I'm unworthy. Maybe I'm damaged. Maybe I can't get it. Well, how about we feel that instead of trying to solve it for a minute and feel it and validate that it's okay. To, it's it's safe to feel that. And that yeah. was such an important thing for me to realize was like, oh, maybe instead of figuring things out all the time, I can sit in the feeling of that and then tell mm -hmm. myself it's okay to feel that way and it makes sense. It makes sense to feel that way, even though feelings aren't a fact. Um, it can still make sense. And then after we've sat with it, you can challenge it. Okay, so yeah, <laughs> what might be a more empowering meaning? <laughs> uh, or well, yeah. And the idea too that, you know, feelings, so we are emotional beings that have cognitive functioning, not cognitive be beings that just have emotions. Like our we experience the world through our body and our emotional selves. And so really thinking about they are meant to come and to provide us information. They are, but they also ebb and flow. You know, think about the last time that you were driving in a car and you got road rage. And then an hour later, you were fine. Like you literally went from being fine to flicking somebody off, saying all of these profanities and then, you know, like hating this person. And then five minutes later, you're back, you know, singing Disney in the car with your kids. And so like, that's an extreme example of, and there's actually some beautiful work that's been done on how road rage is actually connected to intergenerationally repressed emotions and all this stuff. But wow. the idea essentially of like how, what our feelings, you know, when something immediately happens, that feeling is going to dissipate, you know, in dialectical behavioral therapy, when they talk about this element of wise mind, wise mind is about knowing what the feeling is, but not making a decision purely from that place. Also knowing the logic, being able to think about it, but not over logicking. And I think that's the thing for us is to learn. I don't think the majority of humans 
not because there's something wrong with them, but because it's just sort of a problem universally. I don't think we know how to describe our feelings. I think that's why Brene Brown's recent book, Atlas of the Heart, is like flies off the shelves and or is like the thing that everybody's running away from as quickly as possible because it feels so scary because we don't know them. We don't know how to name our feelings. You know, as I'm trying to teach my two and a half year old how to describe what she feels and why something happens and how do we validate that feeling while thinking about how we want to respond and that that feeling, you know, that anger doesn't mean you get to hit somebody. That anger doesn't mean that you get to, you know, if we think about relationships as we get older, it doesn't mean you get to act or do or be that way. So how do we acknowledge what you're feeling and then come to a decision that can factor that in without being guided by it? And I think that's the thing when we allow emotions to drive the bus, shame is the most powerful emotion. And at the end of the day, shame is going to continue to drive the bus and keep us stuck in that feedback cycle. So I think what you're saying of like, okay, what if all those things were true? You're right. There is a chance that they could be the person you wanted them to be in this next relationship. It sounds like you're, you have a very specific story around that. Walk me through that. Like, what do you feel and what is the story? Because if we get to it, their story is then all either about somehow, I suppose, they weren't good enough. Why didn't you do it for me? What's wrong with me? Why was this an issue? And that's all rooted to this belief of if this happens, I'm scared it's just going to be one more story to prove that I'm broken. And so that's the piece we have to sit with is not this relationship here, but the fact that you came into this relationship already believing that that was true because the first time that happened, that's where your brain not went. Not saying, I'm not okay with how this relationship went down. I'm not okay with how this person showed up or I don't like everything that I did and it sucks and I feel heartbroken that it's ending and I can figure out how to move forward with that, find forgiveness for them and me and and hope that both of us can continue to grow and evolve given the experience together. That's a very different person than the person ruled by shame. Oh, that is so powerful. Oh my gosh, there's so much in there. I love um, the discussion about both the emotions and the logic and like they've both got to be on the bus. Like they're both, they're, they're both important. You can get too logical and you can get... Um, and you can get too lost in the emotions and start acting mm -hmm. from them without regulating yourself and then having an intentional decision about what you will do, you know, once that emotion is, the wave has gone up and down. Mm -hmm. and that is, I think, so wise, something that I, you know, it's sort of, it's been a journey of becoming an adult. <laughs> and I think, mm -hmm. I think some of this stuff has been, I've been learning as I've been trying to figure out how to become an adult. And I, yeah. I used to think that um, love and relationships should be chosen only from the emotion um, mm. or only from the logic. Like it was like I went to either end of the spectrum, but there's an amazing yeah. feeling here, but this makes sense. And it's like, we've got to get to the center. There's a, there's a middle ground um, and something that I think it was something I saw that um, Adam Lane Smith said was that uh, people with um, secure attachment will will use their logic when making when making decisions and um, people with broken attachment will only use emotion they'll just decide from emotion mm. um and uh you know as you said our emotions ebb and flow so what you decide today might not have been what you were going to decide next week so you've got to take some time and slow it down and <laughs> and, and think things through and make sure that like both of you i i use my own frameworks 
to sort of make it make sense to me, but I call those two things, uh, like you said, sort of the wise mind and the, and the something else. For me, I have like the inner mother and the inner father and the mm. inner father is more logical and the inner mother is more, <laughs> lets me have my emotions, but I've always got to make sure that I'm like putting it through both of them. It's sort of like this inner, inner parenting journey I've been on to make sure my yeah. inner child is, is ruled by an inner parent or two of them. Um, so yeah, I love hearing you say that it's just, it's, I guess it's validating to hear such a similar thing, which has been part of my journey to figuring out how to be an adult in this world. Um, yeah. So with, you know, you saying that 12 years and it's been a journey and you've got an amazing result now, um, but it's certainly taken some work, which I think is an important thing. I think we've got to break the fantasy that like, you know, and then they lived happily ever after. No one speaks about right. <laughs> right. And any result worth having takes work, takes effort and takes time. So many people look at someone 12 years in or 16 years in or 30 years in, they're like, I want that tomorrow. Well, how can I find that person? It's like, you're not going to find that person. <laughs> you're going to find yeah. that person 12 years ago and you're going to have to build it up with that person, right? Um, but I would love to know, um, I guess, what are some of your key learnings to, to make, to getting to a thriving um, place now 12 years in? Yeah, I think you know, a lot of what we went through for both of us had to do with our own traumas and our own shame stories coming in. And so, you know, I came in feeling like I, I needed to be needed. And he came in having gone through his own pretty painful heartache and break, feeling like I'm never going to need anybody again. And so there were these two sort of competing stories that were both riddled to the belief that neither one of us was going to be loved fully or that we couldn't trust that we could love without love turning its back on us. And I think I just finished doing, a, I do a therapeutic book club and the book we just wrapped up is all about love by bell hooks. And it's a beautiful book. There's each chapter is on a different focal point, which I like because if there's ones you don't resonate with, you don't have to read them. But there are really key things in there that, I think sum up what I've come to learn, which is realizing that, you know, this idea of like falling in love suggests that we have no control and no onus in it. And I think it's the realization of also coming into love. A lot of the times we've expanded the definitions so much to allow dysfunction, to allow pain, to allow abuse from other relationships into it. You know, I think about what I learned from my mom, and my relationship with my mom and, you know, other people in my family, or even in that past relationship and in other friendships that I had, where there was a lot of narcissism, there was a lot of kind of codependency, there was a lot of unhealthy things that happened. But every time they did, again, you just sort of expand your definition. So I think a big thing for Jordan and I was to get really clear on what does love look like for the two of us. And really creating something that I learned this years ago from a woman named Darcy Loma. I believe she maybe got this from someone else, but it's this idea of creating what's called a designed alliance. And so she equated this the first time to like you walk into kindergarten and they give you all the rules on the board. Well, you know, most kindergartners have seen be respectful, listen when people are talking, but we're not doing the work of making it specific to them to realize how does that tie into my value, but also how does it help me thrive? So this idea of a designed alliance is to think about 
what do I need in order to feel seen, safe, and heard? And that could be needs for myself and or needs from him. I do think a key distinction that I've learned and kind of adapted to it is getting clear on what's a need versus a want. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think we also build this list of trying to get everything we want. Like I joke about this. I've said this before on different interviews. I want the husband that opens up the refrigerator door and like moves a couple things around before he asks me where something is. (laughs) I would like him to sometimes want to have a conversation and geek out on emotions with me that lasts for like six hours. (laughs) I do get those things every once in a while. And I don't always get it when I want it. And there are things that I'm just never going to get, but I don't need that to feel secure. I need somebody that when I ask him a question, I know he's being honest with me because I spent so much of my life having to question whether or not somebody was being real. So I think that first part was really doing this, doing this designed alliance. And we did our first one about 11 years ago, actually. And we revisit it every year. And so, and for a while, when we were going through some pretty painful aspects of growing in our relationship, we did it like every six months and it's checking in with, how are we doing? What does that look like? Are our needs changing? I think in tandem with that, a lot of people find connection to the love languages piece too. So people read five love languages or just learn about how we could receive and give love that can help them start to think about these questions the second thing that we do is we have my and i learned this from another wonderful friend of mine her name's tina hallis and she and her husband would do once they had a daughter they started doing weekly business meetings and they did it for very different reasons what i've learned for jordan and myself is i am the person that wants to talk about everything in the moment for hours on end. He is the person that needs time to process what he's thinking or feeling, doesn't usually have a response when I say something right away and would like to have a set time to be able to have an intention to come in and talk about something. So what we really learned is having a weekly meeting, it helped me realize not everything is urgent. Most things could wait until Sunday nights or you know we move it sometimes. But also realizing for him, I do need those regular touch points. And so he can condition himself to show up and have these conversations. So we can check in about, you know, business things like money or, you know, life choices. But we can also talk about, are we getting our needs met? Or what are pain and resentment we're holding on to? So sometimes it might be like, gosh, on Monday, we had this interaction when you came home from work. And I've still been holding on to it a little bit. And it's still feeling like, there's something between us, like you're resenting me in some way and I'm having a hard time letting that go. What I've found is that space and time by it being a scheduled meeting is it also gives that opportunity for the emotion to come down a little bit instead of going, well, you're treating me like crap and blah, blah, blah. And like, why don't you come home and want to do this? I just pause and I go, okay, let's sit with that and let's bring it up if it's not okay in the next couple of days. And then I think the third thing is, and my mom actually has such a discomfort around this. We talk about ending our relationship all the time. We talk about divorce. We talk about what would it look like to co-parent our daughter if we weren't together anymore. We talk about what it looks like to kind of sustain our goals and wants if we made the choice not to be together. And the reason we started doing that, and it's not like it's the everyday dinner topic, but we check in regularly of, does this still match with what we want? How are we, what's our trajectory? And I think Mel Robbins talked about this at one point with her and her husband, that they became really good, essentially business partners, but they lost 
the emotional connection. And so that conversation allowed us to have some conversations on, gosh, you know, one thing, and this was me, I'm concerned that we're not taking the time for emotion. We're not taking the time to talk about these sort of intimate things in a way that feels like we're not just like running a business and like figuring out how to manage having a kid in a pandemic, you know? And so talking about that or things like, you know, I've noticed that like sexual intimacy looks different right now. And it's really important to me that we talk about that. So I think it brings up the conversations now to think about, I want to continue these things. And as you mentioned this stuff, these are, you know, maybe green, yellow, if not yellow flags, that if we could talk about them now, it helps me continue to feel even more solid that I want to choose long-term instead of choosing, you know, divorce or whatever it is. We also just make it so we're not scared if that happens. I think the reality being too, my mother-in-law is about to be divorced from somebody she's been with for 45 years and she's petrified because she grew up believing what, what does that mean? You're a failure. You've, you know, you've wasted your life. You, there's something bad about getting a divorce instead of realizing relationships change all the time. There is a, a decision about putting in the work, but there's also realizing that the work can also mean walking away if it doesn't serve you and the other person. I think that this is a long answer, but those are my three things. So that would say that we do regularly that I think really changed the basis. And then the last thing I'll say, which people could do today, right now in this moment with their partner, with a friend, with anyone, is we have a daily practice. We now started to do it with our two and a half year old as well, where every single day we say one thing that we're grateful for, one thing we're proud of ourselves for, which is just such a great anecdote for shame. And one compliment to each other. And so that is really, it allows all of us to feel seen every day and to celebrate and see ourselves, but to also celebrate and see each other. And I think that is, at least for me, that gives me that daily feeling that he sees me because we all know what that's like when the weeks are busy and you're the one that's been managing most in the house and you feel like they're not appreciating it and you start to burn out and all this stuff. And it's a story you build in your head but when we have those moments and he's like, gosh, you've been doing a lot. I just want to thank you for making all the meals the last few weeks. It's just been a lot for you. It gives that opportunity for those things to be said. Oh my gosh. It's absolutely brilliant. What I love about it is um, it's tangible. It's like solid. Mm-hmm. People can hold on to and implement, uh, you know, rather than just, just open your heart, you know, and that's like, yeah. what, what does that mean? <laughs> Feel your feeling like, what does that mean? Um, I love how tangible that is, how practical that is, how people can literally implement that. Um, and I also love how how similar it is to some of the stuff that my husband and I put mm-hmm. in um, when we were more in survival mode love. So we've now got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. It's easier. And we can go back to more of the natural flow. <laughs> that was before children. It's like, oh, there's more time. So you can naturally just notice and have presence with someone. But when we had a, when we had a two and a, you know, when we had a three-year-old and a newborn uh, or a six-month-old, oh, my gosh, like it was all hands on deck. There was no time for anything. And we had to become very, very intentional. And what screams mm-hmm. out to me as I'm listening to you is the word intentional. It's intentional. Yeah. It's not accidentally happening. And I think there is a moment where we all need to grow up when the fantasy breaks and we realize we're an adult and we need to actually step up for the results that we want. So Exactly. 
yeah, like your relationship just won't accidentally happen. You need to decide what you want and then make a plan and implement action steps intentionally to create the result. And if the result is not what you currently want, we'll start figuring out um, what you could be doing differently and trying things out. And I just love how intentional it is. And I think it's so important for people to hear because often they just see the Instagram photo of the couple that's been together forever and they project onto that. Those people are so lucky. They just found each other. Right. Like Cinderella and the prince that lived happily ever after. And I would say if you could go behind that photo to any one of those couples, they would say, it's everything. We're here for all of it. The good times, the bad times, the highs, the lows. We kept going. And when things weren't working, we tried to figure it out. We got intentional. We decided to, you know, grit instead of quit. But not just grit on the wrong thing, but actually, I'm sorry, my dog is... um, It's a little tricky when my husband's also working from home because our dog is a little bit, um, anyway, we've gentle parented our dog as well. We're very responsive to the dog. So it it anticipates needs getting met, so it asks us for a lot of needs. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so with with my husband and I, we set up two, this was actually my idea. I'm I'm more connection driven and he was, you know, anyway, and I I really was craving a bit more. So I set up um, two weekly meetings and one was um, to talk about uh, we had a problem that was reoccurring and I was done with this problem. Mm. The problem was every now and then we'd be having a nice evening and then my husband would just say something that would make me feel panicked about money. Mm. And it was out of the blue and I would feel shame or fear or he would just panic me and I was like, <gasps> And it would just derail me because it would just blindside me. And, um, you know, it was like we would have bought something and he would just be like, you know, we've been spending. Like, well, why did you let us spend it? Like, And so I I wanted to stop that. So I said, look, we're going to have a weekly finance meeting. I'm Mm going to be prepared. We're going to come and we're going to talk about the situation. We're going to see where it is, where we want it to be. And if you have any sort of scary thoughts during the week, please save them until I'm mentally prepared for the financial meeting. So we had sort of this this meeting of where are we at financially? Um, This was about 2018, it's now two, it was like four or five years ago. So we had one that was like the business partnership part of the relationship. The other one was um, like the bubble of emotions. So there's this book, Getting the Love You Want by Harville Hendricks and Helen McCulley Hunt, very famous. Mm book it was like one of the you know bestsellers alongside Mars Venus for a really mm-hmm. long time and then they've got Imago Dialogue and this is how I learned about validation and it's a three-step process you mirror you validate you empathize and then you take turns and so at that point we didn't really know how to properly connect we've been winging it for nine years or 12 years mm-hmm. at that point actually um, and then it just it all fell apart with children so it, this was the Imago Dialogue space where there was a container to process all the grievances we had so we had a yep a meeting and so it's really similar to you saying organize some meetings and I think um, it's just powerful to hear that people have actually intentionally done seeing that there's been problems and instead of watching the problem loop and just being frustrated finding a solution and finding a better way to channel that um, I also love what you said about um, you know this the designed alliance and actually giving a structure and a framework to that because I think yeah. one of the hardest things that you said uh, you said at the start the 
our definition of relationship has expanded and someone was once on the podcast mm-hmm. and she had gone from an abusive relationship to a safe one and she said her biggest issue was that people kept saying love was hard love was hard so she thought the abusive relationship was normal and she's like we've got to start being more clear about like what a good relationship looks like what is hard what isn't hard so i love the the framework you gave about like wants and needs and actually getting clear on what you can really expect out of relationship in in terms of meeting each other's needs versus what you just want um i think that helped give more voice to well what what is the hard the hard is that you'll have right. to do some problem solving get intentional um i realize that that it's i've been having such a good time that i've let it go really long so let me just um throw to you for a minute and ask for people to yeah. continue to work with you um how can they how can they get connected how can they find out about the work that you're doing yeah well i think the best place is just to come to my website so adversityrising.com and that's where they'll find podcast guest episodes that i do like this one or youtube videos that i have and they can learn about some of the other programs the coaching that i do I do therapeutic book clubs once a quarter, and then I'm launching my new program, That Life, in January 2023. And it really centers on everything that we're talking about, but from that broader scope of really thinking about the pain, the distress, the resentment, the loneliness, the burnout that's facing all of us and kind of giving space and permission to walk it back and to get clear on why is this a problem for me? Why is this causing me pain? Where does it come from? How is it tethered to my shame? And what do I actually want from this so that you can figure out how to move yourself forward? And I think, you know, you and I have such a similar approach in trying to help people get off the conveyor belt of what I call a Band-Aid solution. So much of the self-help books, the even amazing, wonderful people in this field are creating content that promotes that sort of band-aid solution. Just put a band-aid on it. If you do these things, everything's going to be fine. Here's how we make it more accessible instead of saying, oh no, this is going to be the rest of your life. (laughs) Whether it is a relationship with yourself, a relationship with a long-term spouse or partner, your friendships, your parents, your kids, you are constantly going to face shame. You are constantly going to have to reestablish your worth and sense of self in those internal ways and how you can create space to articulate your needs and wants and to do the work to, you know, again, like we talked about validate our emotions, all those pieces. So that program launches in January and really my way I love to connect is if people have questions they're relating, just shoot me an email, hit the contact button and let me know what's coming up for them. And then I can kind of help direct them on what might be a supportive tool for the next part of their process. Oh, incredible. Incredible. Now, is there anything that you really wanted to share today? And I haven't asked the, the right question to pull it out of you. Is there any sort of leftover thoughts inside of you you really wanted to, to bring to the table on love? I think the only thing that I'm sitting with, because, you know, you and I are having this conversation. I agree. When you said something, I looked, I was like, oh, yeah, we could probably talk for six more hours. And I wouldn't feel tired because of the flow and the energy. Life. But there's a degree even where they're, people listening to this are going to do what my shame brain would do, where they're going to still feel this. There's a term called terminal uniqueness, this idea of like, I'm too broken. There's something too wrong with me. I can't get that. And so I think pausing just to, again, realize that that is your brain trying to protect you from potential hurts. 
And to just name and validate that and to say right now, if what I can do is acknowledge that's happening, that is already a step further than I was coming into listening to this podcast episode. And really then kind of thinking about, okay, so we're talking about conversation and dialogue with our partners. That again, I've been with my husband 12 years. You've now been what, 16 years at this point, it sounds like that you've been together. We're still screwing it up. I still, and like the question I have to ask myself all the time is, am I giving Jordan, am I giving my daughter, am I giving, you know, us in this conversation, am I giving you the invitation opportunity to learn the real me? And am I being the person and the version of myself that's going to draw in the things that I want? And that is such a hard question when shame's infinitely present in our lives. And so I think just maybe summarizing it for people to realize all of this it is easy in the sense that there is a pathway to do the work. It is incredibly complex in the sense of this is an iterative lifelong process. You will never feel done. And if we can create a sense of radical acceptance and excitement for the process of learning and screwing up and uncovering and testing and, you know, any other adjective you want to throw in there, I think that just changes the game because we let go of what shame is focused on, which is on product. And we focus on process and connection. Oh, I love that. It reminds me of a quote that everyone that has, uh, everyone you see out there that you look up to is still figuring it out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. There's no one, you, when you figure it out, you're dead. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> everyone, anyone that's got any sort of result is still on some level, like winging it. I remember yep. even seeing this thing that JK Rowling and Oprah Winfrey say they still have imposter syndrome. <laughs> Heck yeah. So, right. So I, I think, um, that can help like there yeah there are people that have solved what you've solved and they're going to be able to help you and also they're still solving stuff and they're still getting it wrong even when you have the blueprint of how to be regulated how to have critical conversations how to hold space you can kind of screw it up and, and stuff it up but I, I don't know how correct this is but i once saw something maybe elizabeth pantley or some parenting expert said if you get it right like 30 percent of the time <laughs> your children that's a win yeah, your children can have secure attachment. Like if on a baseline, aim for 100% and you'll probably land at around yeah. 30% <laughs> because we're all human, we're all messy. And um, I love that you've said that because, you know, the the drive for perfectionism can be so rooted in shame. And sometimes we perceive that other people are perfect, especially when they're telling us what they have learned and what they do know. We assume that means they're doing it all the time. Like, no, okay. telling ourselves. Right half the time too we're still, still figuring yeah. it out but um yeah but th there is some movement forward so <laughs> yeah I love that it's, it's such a pleasure speaking to you Kira I could I could speak to you forever I could pick your brain there's still I'm gonna like lie in bed tonight and think of like 50 million <laughs> that I had asked but I will settle for being able to play back this episode and um and listen to because I knew I know as you were listening like that there were so many layers to what you were saying. I, I could tell that if I listened a few times, I'd pick up different bits. It was just um, obviously a, a wealth of knowledge and wisdom. And I think oh, thank your, you. course, your course must be absolutely brilliant. Uh, off, off air, should I say, um, Kira was saying that it's essentially the culmination of 
of what she does in therapy and how she helps her clients, putting it in an accessible form. So, uh, you know, for, it was like an eight-week pathway is this sort of thing. It, it's actually designed to take about three to six months, but it is designed as modules, worksheets, and then there's discussion forums and live calls. So people get the community, but yeah, really allowing themselves if they're like me or, you know, again, when you had a six-month-old and a three-year-old and you're like, I'm squeezing in my me time at, you know, between 8.30 when one of them goes to sleep until 10 o'clock when I've got the dream feed like that, you know, whatever that is. So that's kind of the intention and then hopefully starting to bridge some connection gaps for people in that. Yeah, amazing. Oh my gosh, you're doing brilliant. That was my, my darkest hour when I had a three-year-old and a three. So you can love them to bits and also yep. uh, needed, it, it needed um, probably to if I was to do it again I would hire more support for sure uh-huh. <laughs> at the time it's like an Olympic sport you've got to get all the people on the team and you've just got to like amp up the supplements you, you've just got to like treat yourself like an <laughs> athlete for a while as you're going through this really um, intense season um yes. yeah thank you so much for being on the podcast like super appreciate it oh thank you What a fantastic discussion that was with Kira. I completely enjoyed myself and really felt like that could have gone for another three to six hours. (laughs) It was just wonderful and just fantastic to speak to someone very aligned, very on the same page, but uh, articulates their message in a different way, which we're all different. Our brains work differently. And sometimes we just need to hear something said by someone in a particular way and it's that time it's that time that the message finally lands for us and i think that's the power of hearing multiple people uh, give the same message but in their unique way in the way that they articulate it and i think that's the power of having so many people on the podcast that are getting love is you start to realize that there's so much of the same stuff is being said uh it's just that everyone's saying it in in a different way you know is it the inner parent is it the masculine feminine is it the the inner wise knowing is it the consciousness uh and it it just might be that the style and the words that you hear today from kira is a format that really lands with you and you feel like ah yeah that resonate with this with this person uh, who has so much wisdom knowledge and also lived embodied experience which is my favorite um kind of wisdom you know that actual that actual lived embodied wisdom there's nothing quite like it you know you can read everything you you want to read about childbirth but until you've actually given birth you don't really have uh, as much understanding of the process as um as someone that has actually physically felt it happen with their body right and I really believe it's the same thing with love, which is why I love to feature people on the podcast who have the embodied experience and can share it with you and articulate how they got there um, and and how it feels and some of the keys to getting that. And one of them is definitely being intentional, right? You see through the podcast how when I ask a question, like everyone's thought about it and then they've actually done something. They've actually been proactive, right? Um, they've been proactive. They've been intentional and um yeah and and they've tried to create the love that they want it just doesn't happen by accident 
potentially if you were born in a family where there was just you were surrounded by secure attachment and therefore you inherent you inherited the blueprint which means that the person you are is just someone that knows how to relate in a secure way then yeah maybe it would feel like love is always easy and effortless because you're accidentally doing the secure attachment thing that other people don't realize they need to learn you know we don't always know what we don't know and we don't always know what we do know that other people don't know uh but by and large most people have uh, a gap between what they currently know and what they need to know to get the love that they want so i hope you really enjoyed immersing yourself in that today i've put the website to kira wackett's um advert yeah her website so her work her offerings her other podcast interviews this sort of thing in the show notes so in the caption of this podcast it was called um, adversityrising.com and if you'd like to learn more about me your host Elise Peck uh, so I'm a best-selling author on the topic of love I am a love coach and for thousands of hours I've helped people to get the love that they want through one-on-one coaching and uh, I'm also a former lawyer and I study postgraduate psychology at UNSW here in Sydney, Australia. So if you like um, my vibe or you feel a pull or a resonance, uh, I encourage you to head to my website, elisepeck.com. There on the front page, you can learn more about uh, the eight-week uh, one-on-one coaching pathway that I offer people called the Love Elixir. It's the smartest way to get the love that you want. And uh, if you know someone with a really inspiring love story, please encourage them to go to my website, elisepeck.com, go to book now and to book in a podcast interview with me so that we can capture their love story, their insight, their wisdom, and we can continue to evolve our mind and grow in love together. All right. Thank you so much for joining. I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Bye for now.